I'm uh, Nicholas Bornels of Capital Inc. and I am delighted and honored to welcome you to the closing panel of our uh, forum today. Uh, it has been overall uh, a very interesting, very rewarding day. And uh, I am really honored that uh, we have uh, in front of us uh, a panel of uh, unique, tremendous insight. I would like to thank uh, John Kudunis, uh, the CEO of Calamos, and of course, Robert Bush of Calamos, who John helped us put together this uh, amazing panel and uh, was kind enough to uh, accept to moderate it. So when we have with us uh, Mario Gabelli, John Calamos and Tracy Maitland, uh, who are going to share their insight on the current economic and investment climate. And of course, uh, talk about um, the closed and fund space and its outlook. So that uh, in this environment, when a lot of things don't happen or they happen just as a simple webinar, we have been able to keep the standard, keep the quality, keep the flag up and put together a very high quality conference, a full scale event, concluding with this amazing panel. So John Kudunis, again, thank you for your help and please take over. And uh, John Calamos, Mario Gabelli and Tracy Maitland, uh, I simply cannot thank you enough for being with us today. Thank you. Nicholas, thank you very, very much. Really appreciate it. And we really appreciate all the work that you do uh, with Capital Link and uh, bringing everybody together for these unique conferences. You do a phenomenal job, so thank you. Today we have, uh, uh, I have the privilege of uh, moderating three esteemed guests uh, that I think probably do, don't need any introduction, but I'll give it just a quick one. I'll start with uh, my colleague, John Calamos, founder, chairman, global chief investment officer, Calamos Investments, started the business in 1977, undergrad and uh, MBA from uh, Illinois Tech, and uh, has written a couple of books. He's known as the founder of Convertibles. We have uh, at Calamos seven closed-end funds. And uh, also, it'd be amiss if I don't say that John was also a, uh, in the Air Force, an Air Force pilot during uh, Vietnam, uh, a decorated uh, veteran. So we thank you for your service. We thank you for being here. We also have Mario Gabelli who uh, back in 1976, 77, was founder and chairman of, uh, and CEO of GAMCO. Uh, highly decorated Fordham undergrad, Columbia grad school, Morningstar manager of the year, money manager of the year by institutional investor, Barron's all-star century team. We're really honored to have him. And of course, Tracy Maitland, founder and chairman of uh, Advent Capital Management. Uh, who's also a, a Columbia undergrad uh, graduate, and he uh, started the business at Merrill Lynch in convertibles, uh, and also was uh, you know a director there at convertibles. And I have to say, um, Tracy was one of the uh, people that interviewed me when I was in college, uh, and uh, apparently went okay because uh, I got the job at Merrill Lynch too right out of college. So thank you for that, Tracy. I appreciate it. So without further ado. Uh, why don't we start um, by uh, throwing out a question here and having uh, you guys uh, kind of uh, give us your view uh, about how you began, how you started your firms, and what led you to uh, uh, look at the uh, closed-end fund industry. Uh, let's start with uh, John Calamos. 
please. Okay, John. Yeah, well, um, as you mentioned, I started uh, investing actually in the early 1970s. And uh, to me, it was all about risk management, uh, very volatile markets uh, back then. And so I really wanted to, how can I manage risk? And that really got me involved in convertibles as a way to manage risk. So I wanted to, you know, get the upside, but protect on the downside. And so uh, I really got very active in, the, uh, in, in, in how to manage risk. In fact, even when the options market opened up in 1974, uh, instead of doing convertible arbitrage, I was using options. So really uh, looking at different solutions in managing risk uh, in, in the markets. Um, and, you know, we uh, started the, uh, our own company back in 1977 and then uh, started the first convertible fund, open-ended convertible fund back in 1985. And uh, later on, um, managing that um, in the market correction in 2000, uh, what, what we found was in the convertible area, uh, as the market corrected, a lot of the convertibles, what we call busted converts, uh, they were trading more on yield and look more like high yield bonds in there. And, and, and uh, I had been looking at the uh, closed-end fund market and I thought, boy, this is a great opportunity to get income for, in that area. And in talking to some of the investment bankers at the time, uh, we started our first closed-end fund using convertibles uh, for income. So we included income and high yield in that strategy. Uh, did one in 2002, uh, really did another very similar strategy in 2003. So again, it was uh, how do we provide income solution in managing risk and and that's how we started in convertibles and in the, uh, the closed-end fund business. Thank you, John. Mario? Yeah, I'm, I'm a, started caddying. I used to get a buck and a half a bag and hitchhike uh, to, uh, from the Bronx to Scarsdale, and the specialists would show up at night, and I was one of the few that was able to hang around. And they talked about the market, and I said, hey, this is better than uh, playing cards in the street. Or, and they didn't have Hold'em in the Bronx at the time. So we started buying stocks, uh, and I was a passionate uh, investor until I uh, didn't know exactly what to do until I went to uh, Columbia Business School and took a course with Roger Murray, who succeeded Graham and Dodd, and he taught security analysis. Fast forward, I joined Loeb Rhodes. Uh, fast forward, I joined on a Monday. Mike Steinhardt quit on a Friday, and I picked up the industries, uh, autos, farm equipment, conglomeracy followed, and then I picked up the entertainment what I learned at the time was the arbitrage department needed my help, so I got into ARB. They also needed some help in converts at the time. So we did a little bit of that, but independent of that, fast forward, I went to William D. Witter. We, they merged into Drexel, and on January 1st, 1977, started my own sell-side broker-dealer because I couldn't raise money. It was uh, stocks with three or four times cash flow, or EBITDA. And uh, basically, and EBITDA wasn't used. I didn't use that until a few years later, but in, independent of that, uh, I was on a flight from Boston to New York, and a friend of mine that worked at Low Broads showed me a prospectus for Chuck Allman's All-Star Outlook. And uh, it was the first closed-end fund. And I had been exposed to them because I'd go to the West Coast and visit with George Michaelis at Source Capital and a bunch of other guys and, you know, try to pitch them on stocks to get commissions to pay my kids' food bills. Uh, bottom line, uh, I just 
copied everything they did, including going through the same underwriter, which at the time was Cher Lehman, blah, blah, and uh, Joe Plameri was in charge of marketing. And uh, we stay in touch 32 years later. So that's it. And the reason that I liked it was that money would not flow out if the market collapsed. And lo and behold, October of 87 tested that theory. I mean, you know, the markets were 2,700 on, uh, on a Friday, and I think there were 1,500 on Tuesday. So closed-end funds have the virtue of allowing a manager to make investment decisions and pick up entities opportunistically uh, when the markets collapse. So that's the background. Well, permanent capital is definitely one of the golden rings, that's for sure. Tracy, how about you? Sure, thanks, uh, John. It's great to be here with... Uh two legendary investors that at one point in time were clients of mine. So they, they may not even remember that, but in any event, um, I've had two jobs, uh, Merrill Lynch and this, and at Merrill Lynch, I had the good fortune of rotating around the entire firm, as you know, looking at lots of different departments and I stumbled on convertibles and I said, wait a minute, I can get equity-like returns with a more bond-like risk profile. Uh, and, and to me, that was very interesting. I was like, why don't more people do this? And the answer is that not a lot of people were aware of this. Not a lot of people thought about it. And so uh, long story short, I, I had the choice of going to the convertible department, which I did. And I went out to Detroit, Michigan, uh, where I spent a lot of time calling on the trust banks. And when you think about the typical profile of a high net worth client, they already got rich. And so staying rich was more important. So safety principles important, current income was important, and then capital appreciation. So that net worth, high net worth client looked like a convertible bond. And so we were able to take the Detroit region from not even being on the map to being the second largest satellite office in the Maryland system in about two years after I spent time educating the local uh, banks and trust departments on why convertibles made sense. So it was just a totally looked over, overlooked asset class. And I also would say, even at Merrill Lynch, our unit was the most profitable unit in the firm. I was the number one producer in the firm, except, except for the guy that uh, had some problems with Orange County back then. And so we were very, very profitable uh, area. We had 70% of the capital on the floor. We were 30 guys and, and women, and there's about 500 people on the floor, but we had 70% of the capital because we were that profitable and we were able to hedge our, ourselves. So uh, long story short, ultimately uh, we, we became bigger and bigger and I decided to leave the firm and start a firm that emphasized convertibles as an asset class because even at Merrill Lynch, even though we were very, very profitable, we were still sort of a sideshow. And so I think, uh, uh, and that's the same way, same thing at a lot of bigger firms where convertibles are kind of a sideshow. So I thought if you had a firm that emphasized convertibles as an asset class, talked about positive asymmetry and the structural alpha that occurred as a result of that, uh, I thought it would make sense to have a firm that focused on that, emphasized that, uh, and highlighted that, and that would be the, the major focus of the firm. So. Here we are today. So that's why we started the firm and uh, almost 25 years ago. So great, great to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. While all of us have experienced our fair of different market cycles, it's reasonable to say that this current environment is uh, unprecedented. So we'd like to get your take since you guys have seen a lot, what your overall views are on the economy and the road ahead. And why don't we start with Mario on this one? Yeah, but the, the, our approach has been fairly simple. Uh, we were out in uh, Las Vegas for a, a conference uh, and uh, 
we were worried about the supply and log logistics coming out of Wuhan and because of the China dynamics. And then all of a sudden we had the problems in South Korea and in Italy. And then starting in the middle of March, you had a total lockdown of certain businesses and systems and the market collapsed. So as we sat back, we looked at the world and said, okay, where are we fast forward? Banks, because of concerns over payments, oil, because of the drop that that time there was a war between uh, whatever, uh, some would argue that they were just trying to hit American uh, production. Um, and then you had travel and leisure and a total shutdown and the bottle stocks, BOTLs had collapsed. Now, looking forward, we had a significant uh, fiscal uh, stimulus, uh, unprecedented. You had, uh, uh, prior to that, the start of a monetary policy that was extraordinarily exceptional. So now, a year from now, will we, when we have, and we'll have, um, the global uh, ingenuity is there with regards to a vaccine. Uh, will we have the kind of growth? And then how do we pay for the deficits that have been accumulated? And obviously in the next 60 days, we may even have an election. Results come out um, and figure out what uh, the tax dynamics are in the US. Are. But on, on balance, I'm looking at China's recovery. I'm looking at Germany and what they're doing. I'm looking at the global economy. It's an $85 trillion economy. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, over the next two or three years, uh, we'll do quite well. It's just a question of uh, getting past this little uh, air pocket. And so in the stock market, then the question is, what about uh, revenues for companies? What about gross margins? What about SG&A? What about pre-tax profits? What about use of leverage, stock buybacks or stock sales? And then you have the, uh, the, the problems that we have that you see today in the 60s, the guy was reading the tape and they would trade stocks. Uh, in the uh, mid-80s, uh, Leland O'Brien came around and sold, sold your portfolio insurance, and everybody thought you'd be protected down 10. And then uh, 2000, you had the dot-coms. And then 08, 09, everybody leveraged, and they were uh, leveraging up until the, part, the music stopped. So today, you have Robin Hood. It's taken a Fortnite player and put him into a gambling situation and you're seeing some unusual dynamics in terms of stocks. You have algos, you have momos, you have ETFs, uh, all of which are uh, accentuating uh, the momentum in particular stocks and industries. Whether you're talking about Nicola going public or whether you're talking about uh, other companies that we can identify. So, but nothing's changed. You, we, John and Tracy go in every day with a microscope, looking at the companies they're looking at, looking at a telescope on how to make money, protect clients. So John, that's all we do. Okay. Tracy, you you? Thanks. You know, uh, Mary made some interesting comments, and we agree with uh, a lot of them. You know, we're really, I preface my comments by saying we're really a bottom-up firm, okay? But it's really all about the virus right now, and when is there going to be a vaccine? And so what we really focus on is companies that we think can make it over the liquidity bridge, okay? So we've done burned-out scenario analysis. We understand the levers that they can pull to make sure that they can make it over that bridge. Uh, and so we're looking at companies that have tremendous barriers to entries to their businesses, that have liquidity to make it over that liquidity bridge. Uh, and that's kind of really what we're focused on. We're flying some of them in the travel and leisure industries, which we think and, uh, are going to come back, have to come back strongly. But as long as they have the capital uh, to get over this air pocket, so to speak, uh, is really, really what's important. Ultimately, we're going to get back on track. Uh, we're going to have to discount this year and basically say, look, equities, really discount long-term uh, 
cash flow, right? That's really what we're talking about. So, so what is that discount factor? And with rates at almost zero, obviously that makes equities more attractive. And so you're not buying a stock for necessarily today. You're looking at a intermediate term to long-term uh, solution to your investment objectives. And in that regard, uh, you have to be able to discount uh, these valuations to see what makes sense in today's environment and buy stocks that you're comfortable with that valuation after you discount where you think they will be when they get back on track once we're over this liquidity bridge. But the main thing is making over liquidity bridge. And convertibles is a tremendous way. Uh, you have a more senior security. You have upside potential when stocks continue to, stocks continue to do well. You have the downside protection because we've done the credit work to make sure that these companies are going to be in business uh, over the intermediate term. And we think uh, with increased volatility because of the election, because of uh, uh, trade wars, because of the pandemic, volatility is going to continue to increase with all these geopolitical issues. So we think convertibles is a wonderful way to be in the marketplace. And by the way, if the economy does recover and rates still start to rise, we looked at convertibles over a, a multi-decade period, and we see that convertibles simply do well in a rising interest rate environment. So in the event that rates rise, you really shouldn't see convertible closed-end funds come, come under the pressure that straight bond funds do. So anyway, in answer to your question, we're looking, we're bottom up, we're looking at companies that can make it over the liquidity bridge, that have great franchises, great barriers to entry, uh, and once they get back on track, uh, will be great long-term uh, positions for it. So there you go. Uh, sounds good, Tracy. Thank you. John, your thoughts? just want to thank Tracy for reading my book on convertibles because he described it very, very well. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, my sense is uh, the market um, is really anticipating uh, the economy coming back and uh, this pandemic being behind us. And uh, that's what it's all about. Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty out there uh, with the turbulence in the market. And as um, Mario mentioned, uh, this option trading that's going on is really kind of curious because it's it's causing uh, a lot of volatility in particular issues. Uh, but overall, you know, uh, kind of remain a bit more positive. Obviously, uh, we don't know what the public policy is going to be until after the election, and that's going to be important uh, longer term. Uh, but uh, my view is uh, we're in this V-shaped recovery, which we'll, we'll go through, and uh, hopefully uh, the uh, fiscal policy going forward after the election will remain positive to, to see the economy uh, growing. Um, so it's a, uh, uh, you know, I kind of agree with, with the other outlooks here as well. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Given what the panel's said here, What's the outlook about uh, raising capital in this environment? Tracy, you want to take a stab at that? Sure. Well, look, obviously it, it's going to be a challenge, but I think that the closed-end fund uh, is a great way to be in a marketplace because when you have volatility like this uh, and things become unglued, you have an opportunity if you have long-term permanent capital to invest in great situations. So as we, the industry, are able to communicate the opportunity of investing in closed-end funds, particularly in a zero interest rate environment, and the ability for these funds to borrow very, very cheaply and redeploy that capital at much higher rates of return and earn that spread, we've got to be able to communicate that to the public. And if we do that effectively, 
I believe we'll have a tremendous opportunity to continue to grow this asset class, so to speak. So I think uh, there's a real opportunity that makes sense, uh, uh, particularly with rates where they are. When you think of people that are retirees that, are, that have zero interest rates in their, in their checking accounts, in their bank accounts, zero interest rates in the bond market, what's a way for them to be able to fund their lifestyle over time? And the idea that you can invest in a closed-end fund that has either monthly or quarterly distributions to supplement your income, it's a wonderful way to be in the marketplace. I just don't think many people know about it, and we have to do everything we can to raise the profile of this asset class going forward. So if we do that uh, effectively, uh, I think uh, we'll be able to grow this asset class as it should grow. Okay, I appreciate that, Tracy. Let's discuss the evolution of the closed-end funds with respect to uh, the offering costs. Uh, an effort to make the IPO experience a better for the customers, the closed-end advisors are now paying for all their offering costs as uh, opposed to previously when the customers were paying for it. That enables the IPO buyer to receive the net NAV at the same amount of the offering price no longer reducing by the expenses. Some firms have been willing to do this, others have not. At Calamos Investments, uh, we recently conducted an IPO for uh, closing the fund and paid these upfront costs, which can run upwards to about 4% of the offering size. It has certainly helped revitalize the closing fund IPO market, but it's very expensive for the issuers. Mario, Tracy, what are your thoughts on this uh, different change in terms of the offering costs? Well, Mario or Tracy, Tracy, why don't you start? Well, first I'll say, look, it's certainly, certainly a productive way forward, but I don't think it's the only way forward. And I don't think that's where we're going to end up because only the most well-capitalized large firms are going to be able to afford to do that. And so if you're looking for best-in-class ideas, they come from a diversity of places. And if you want to encourage that diversity, uh, and have that, have that opportunity for the investor, we have to have a more effective way for smaller firms and mid-sized firms to be able to participate uh, in this marketplace. We want to grow, grow the closed-end fund uh, marketplace for everyone. I think that's good for the existing firms, it's good for large firms, and it should be good for small and medium-sized firms because it's ultimately going to be good for the client. And what's good for the client, it's going to be good for all the firms. So we have to find a way uh, to make it more cost-effective to get more players in the marketplace uh, for the good of the overall industry, in my opinion. So I think it's a good step forward because there was no new issuance at all. And now you're starting to see it as a result of, of what, what's occurred and what uh, John talked about. Uh, but I do think we have to continue to evolve and develop a way forward for these small mid-sized firms to be able to participate uh, in, in the marketplace. And that, quite frankly, that's how we got in the marketplace initially. Uh, and we were approached to, to do a closed-end fund, uh, and the, the underwriter wanted a different, fresh manager uh, as, as opposed to the big three or four. Uh, and that's how we got in business. We were approached to do it, uh, and, uh, and, that's how, and that's why we did it. So I think if you want to be able to encourage innovative, small, medium-sized firms, again, which is good for the clients, because if they win, we all win, uh, that is the way to go. So let me, let me stop there and turn over to uh, the next panelist. Normally, yeah, yeah, no, normally I would uh, follow uh, Tracy and say the way Charlie Munger follows Warren Buffett. I have nothing to add, but I actually want to just flash back to the 
1986-7. At the time, Merrill Lynch, uh, 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 Shearson took us public and uh, there was a fee that was this. So if you sold it at 10, the advisor got $9 and a quarter. We raised about $400 million. Since that time, we spun off three closed end funds to our shareholders uh, and those became uh, involved in special areas like utilities, like uh, uh, global multimedia. And then each one was able to add some leverage. So there was no cost. So going, and then the second part is uh, you need to do what Tracy suggested. And that what Tracy is suggesting is small firms uh, that have an idea need to raise this kind of permanent capital. Now you look at the Securities and Exchange Commission, Jay Clayton is looking for new ways to allow in a, a capital to be raised for corporations. Do we allow, what is the changing the rule of accredited investors to go into private equity? What is the rule that is changing with regards to uh, liquidity of certain types of instruments? So the notion of a variety of, of methodologies to raise capital, not only will the closed-end fund be good for the investor, but it may be good for the system that we have to uh, consider because those closed-end funds can provide uh, capital depending on their respective charter for uh, companies looking to raise capital to compete on a global marketplace. So I'm all in favor of uh, new ideas. Uh, some will work, some will not, but we also have to be more inclusive. Okay. Uh, Mario, let's talk about taxes. Uh, you know, they're, they're always a consideration, right? Especially as more of the uh, baby boomers face retirement here. Why don't you talk a little bit about, give us your expert opinion about how closed-end fund structures can be used in a product design to optimize uh, tax efficiency for uh, our clients. Well, that's a jump ball. Let's go back to taxes and let's talk about what we have as a structural problem, not only in the United States, but around the world. If you took the Congressional Budget Office data back in January before the pandemic, we were gonna raise 3.6 trillion in the US and spend four six. Now you're looking like you're gonna raise, uh, spend six six uh, and the deficit is three trillion on top of a $21 trillion deficit. So how do we finance that? And what are the elements to that? Now, one area that is important to me because we follow so many industrial companies is to rebase and resource the supply of manufacturing in the United States. So when you talk about taxes, what do I like? I like the fact that we as a country have gone territorial versus global. Secondly, a 20, an eight, a 20 percent rate or 21 percent rate for the corporate makes us extremely competitive in terms of a location to source. The amount of money involved was like going from 280 billion to 210 billion, and it's going back up in terms of the impact of that structural change. On the other side, what don't I like? But 12 years we've been talking about the carried interest that is totally inappropriate for private equity and others to be able to take money that they would earn as W-2 income and then take that and tax it at a capital gain. What happened when everybody controlled the House, the Senate, and how are we gonna change that? What are the incumbents, what is the methodology of the lobbyists doing? The other one that's outrageous for stockholders is a section 1031. If I own a piece of real estate, I cannot pay the, I don't have to pay the tax. I get a deferral, except for one thing. Uh, for smart individuals, what they do is they get their deferral down and they give them the, the uh, asset to a charity and get a tax deduction on top of that. Uh, at, 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 so there are a lot of elements that can be looked at. Another one that's so obvious, John, 
and which uh, is the following. Since I've been following the industry for 60 years, what is fair about an inner city dweller, dwelling, uh, dweller that needs a car now? Should he, can he go out and get a Tesla for $65,000 and get a $10,000 uh, break? Where's he gonna charge it if he lives in, in an apartment building? So some of these things are just logical but illogical. So from a point of view of open-end funds, you got an 852 section B6, and I don't wanna get into that, that is totally unfair with regards to ETFs. They have the ability to roll out capital gains and not pay it, the owner doesn't have to pay a tax. The industry has been mute on this subject. They, uh, they should go out and fight for that. And secondly, if you go around the world, how do we help savers who are gonna retire, put money into a closed end fund and, or any kind of an instrument and, not, and pay tax only on dividends and interest if it's not in their 401k or defined benefit contribution. So uh, the way we do it in certain parts of the world is that you don't, the entity, a closed end fund only pays taxes, uh, distributes a, a 1099, and that's only a, imp, impacts individual investors who are taxable uh, on uh, dividends, interest minus expenses. So there's a lot there, the landscape is there, and uh, clearly those issues about the retirement age. And then finally, John, I'm gonna point out that Charlie Munger's 96 and he's not retiring. So get rid of this idea that you retire at 65. I think there's a lot of people on this call that would agree with that. Anybody else want to, uh, Mario was very thorough on this. Anybody else want to add? I, no, no, I was just touching on? some of the subjects that I have on taxes. As you can see that I used to make out tax returns for a living back in, this, in the 60s when I was a county major at Fordham. Anybody want to add to this or should we move on? All right, let's move on. A big part of what we do in this industry is uh, we, we educate our, uh, our clients and investors. And uh, we spent a lot of time at Calamos doing this. Um, so John, let me, let me start with you. What are your thoughts on the importance on investor education and what aspects in particular in closing uh, funds are essential for clients to really understand? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's a very important point. And what we've been trying to do, in fact, all of us here on the panel been trying to do is make sure that the investor uh, is educated towards this. And uh, we just put out a paper, you know, a month ago, search for income. And, you know, th this is a solution for investors to have income. And the income in the closed-end fund is very, very good. So educating them uh, as this is a way to get income, I think is very important. Then the other aspect of education that's important is the value of the uh, closed-end fund to the market value uh, to its NAV. And, and that's really important. What we saw here happen uh, this year is with the correction back uh, uh, in the first quarter, all of a sudden, uh, many of these closed-end funds have gone to a discount. So the investors should know that they could be buying these funds at a good discount. And you know, it's like our funds and the convertibles have done very, very well this year. They're up over 20%. And we have funds trading at almost a 10% discount, which is, which is almost kind of silly in here. Uh, and it's in, you know, you would think that there would be a fear that distributions would be going down, but they're not going down. 
So it's an educational process, I think, that's very important. And we've been trying to promote that to make uh, more of uh, the investors aware of the closed-end fund market as a search for income and be able to provide that. And, you know, uh, we've had our closed-end fund since 2002. It's provided that income stream through all those years, through many uh, cycles. So I, I think the educational uh, aspect of this is very important. And it's not just us. Uh, as a team here, we've been trying to educate uh, in, investors and retail investors about the benefits of uh, closed-end funds. Well, then how, John, um, can investors really utilize closed-end funds? Uh, you know, can you address the investment needs and other portfolio solutions using these closed-end funds? Uh, yeah, I think it's part of the asset allocation, of course, but uh, for, uh, you know, for a lot of investors are looking for income, and now we're in our lowest interest rate environment that we've ever seen. Where do you get income in here? Where can you get eight, nine percent uh, income streams uh, in an environment where, you know, interest rates are so low? So I think that's really relevant here, and, and we have to educate the investor to, to this is a opportunity for that. And uh, that's what we're seeing in here. Thank you. Hey, uh, let me hitchhike on that. I mean, basically, Capital Inc. is a part of a process of getting sell-side analysts to start thinking about, or even buy-side analysts to think about this. But where the points of distribution are going to the RAA community, uh, and it's uh, been a challenge to continue to con communicate to them about the virtues of closed-end funds and how they fit into uh, client portfolios. So going to places like AARP, I think Tracy's already got certain models where he's going, but he was on the sell side, I was on the sell side, and we're very sensitive about uh, going out and communicating those benefits. The second part is, uh, how do we, uh, back in 1987, and I hate to say this is only 33 years ago, uh, basically uh, our, our closed-end fund, which was less than a year old, dropped to a 20% discount. There was a guy on the West Coast that I knew, George Michaelis at Source Capital. George put in a 10% distribution policy. And interest rates at that time were materially higher, obviously. But so the question, and we've maintained that distribution policy for one of our closed-end funds. And that has basically given to an individual investor an opportunity to A, and reinvest if it's tax-free, pay the taxes if unfortunately it's taxable. And uh, those kind of distribution policies help keep that discount narrow. Uh, on the other side, uh, if you can buy uh, what we think are bargains and buy a closed-end fund at a 15% discount, as John pointed out, you get a double uh, benefit. But the education is not among us, and it's not among, uh, it's got to be wider spread. It's got to go and teach the AARP. It's got to teach to the uh, Robin Hoods of the world, and that's a challenge. It's a, a, a really a, a interesting world. Tracy, how, would, how can we do it? Any thoughts on this? beyond what we talked about? Yeah, just one additional thought, uh, Mario, as you come up. We've done the same thing in our closed-end funds where we want a level distribution policy uh, over, and we've tried to maintain that over the years, which we've been successful doing that. So somehow we have to communicate that better out to investors because th that level distribution policy is really important to investors. I'll turn it over to you, Tracy, sorry. Well, there's not a lot for me to add. I think I think you guys are spot on. I think closed-end fund industry is an overlooked asset class. 
um, and convertibles and overlooked asset class. And that's good for people that are keenly and acutely focused on this opportunity. We just need to broaden uh, the spectrum of that audience. And so I think this conference is, a, is a, certainly a wonderful way to do it, as Marrow stated. I think we just have to do more of that uh, and raise the profile uh, within the respective uh, investment banks as well to, to spend a lot of time. And there's not a lot of analysts that follow closed-in funds. There's probably only two or two of them uh, on the sell side. Uh, so some of the things, if you guys are getting underwriting from these, these investment banks, we have to insist that we get better coverage. Uh, to, for, for one thing, to raise the profile of the, of the asset class, even within those uh, organizations. Because people want to know that someone's paying attention to this investment on a long-term basis and it doesn't become a, a, a stepchild. So that's one place we can talk about is you know, better coverage from the street uh, and also raising the profile on the different financial publications, you know, whether it be Barron's or, or, or what have you. Uh, and, and, great conferences like uh, Capital Link, I think is very, very important. So that's a good start, but we've got a long way to go. Yep. Now, listen, uh, we eat our own cooking. I personally own a closed-in fund. The firm owns a closed-in fund. And so uh, if we didn't believe in it, uh, we wouldn't own it. So, so uh, but we just have to uh, make sure that other people understand and appreciate the value of income, in, particularly in this environment. Hey, Tracy, I have 27% of a, of a fund that's a UK base, which has some tax advantages for tax-free accounts. And uh, somebody objected to our owning that much of it, but we were born that way. We, we invested that way early in life. You can't please everyone because people are driven by short-termism. Uh, on the other side, the notion of getting this message across is very important. And the new funds that are being created in part are re spiking in awareness uh, that these funds have some virtue. However, I want to point out that uh, I'm looking at a number here from the industry. Uh, there were 136 equity funds uh, and uh, 10, 12 years ago. Today is uh, under 100. So we need to have more of those. The same thing with regards to uh, global funds, the same thing with regards to domestic taxable and uh, fixed income funds. So uh, more funds coming to the market, even with the new distribution opportunities, uh, even though they're not as diverse as they should be for everyone, in terms of availability to raise capital, are going to be an element in that regard. You know, so, Matt, John? You make an interesting point, you know, uh, in terms of short-termism. Now, you mentioned the decline in those funds. You know, there were 650-plus closed-end funds back in 2007. Today, they're under 500, so you have almost a 25% decline in the number of funds. Uh, and part of it is mergers, part of it is activists, part of it is people looking for short-term solutions. But you know, when I think about short-term solutions, I'm reminding of the situation I just went through. We have a little small boat and, and the boat market's kind of hot right now. So the broker called me up, I bought the boat two years ago. They said, hey, do you want to sell a boat? I said, no. They offered me more money than I paid for it two years ago, right? And I turned it down twice. I said, if I sell the boat, then what am I going to do, right? And so if you continue to have a decline in the closed-end funds because of activism or what have you, these short-term gains, then where are retirees going to get 7, 8, 9, 10% yields? They're not going to be able to get them. So that short-term gain, like the boat if I sell it, is short-term. And then what do you do, right? And so I think we have to have the public think about intermediate-term, long-term solutions to their financial needs. Uh, and so uh, I think that's very, very important. So 
the decline in the funds because of short-termism uh, is not productive for the long-term solution of the, of the investors. And by the way, closed-end funds also provide an opportunity for our country. Companies are able to raise long-term capital. They're all not, you know, S&P 500 companies. They have to have the ability to be able to raise long-term capital where they can afford to pay for planting equipment, create jobs, so on and so forth. So there's a whole economic question or solution solved by closing funds, not just for the investors, but for the corporations that need to raise capital to fund their operations. So this is very important. Uh, and I think we have to address the decline in closed-end funds, which by the way, is good for investors temporarily because as demand increases for them, the less funds available, it's not happening right now, but it, but it will, and will happen as people begin to understand and appreciate that the need for yield, and this is one of the few places that you can get it. So I, I went off on tangent a little bit here, but I thought it was important. No, 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 well stated and a good, uh, a point well appropriate to echo and to uh, uh, bring to the center orchestra again. Well, these were all very, very, very strong uh, points. These are great. Thank you, gentlemen. One of the things I want to talk about is the resilience of the closed-end fund market. It was quite profound after its initial sell-off this last February. Many funds are outperforming the respective indexes in both price and NAV on a year-to-date basis. What do you guys believe are the contributing factors for this? Why don't we have, um, John, why don't you start us off on that? Well, well I, I think, uh, you know, the funds have performed well through the NAV, which is really disappointing, is the discount is still there. And, and that makes it kind of odd where you have uh, funds, uh, especially in our convertible area here, they're up over 20%, uh, but they're trading at an 8 or 9% discount. So it doesn't seem like the, the market's aware of how well it's doing. The other thing about the convertible market, I would just add, too, we've seen uh, just one of the best issuance we've ever seen this year in, in convertible. So that's positive to the overall market. It's providing capital to the economy. So we're seeing good issuance in there as well as in munis and high yield. So all that is, is very positive to the market. But um, uh, I think uh, making investors aware of the not only the income distribution, but how well those portfolios are, are, are really, um, you know, doing here is important. Okay, thank you. Tracy? You know, I, again, I can just echo what John's saying that, that I'm scratching my head why these funds are trading at discounts. You know, you have the convertible indices are up, uh, you know, say, you know, 18, 19% or so. And if you just separate it out to growth convertibles, they're up over 40%, right? So it's one of the best performing asset classes, not in just in this country, but in the world. And so the funds trading at a discount uh, just doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the opportunity set is very productive going forward. The idea that you can buy a convertible that matures in three or four years, and as the stock goes up, you enjoy a majority of the upside. The stock goes down, and it could go down given the volatility because of geopolitical issues and China trade tensions, uh, 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 the pandemic, so on and so forth. It's a great way to get equity-like opportunity or potential with only a portion of the risk. And so this year, John's 100% right. You had tremendous of global issuance, which increases the opportunity set for us to look at other opportunities to invest in convertibles and also take advantage of this very attractive 
risk reward profile where you can get equity like returns with only a portion of risk. And for the funds to be trading at discount now, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So uh, I suspect that perhaps people were taking profits because they did well. Uh, but I think that it's still, we have to get the message out and we're doing it here at this conference to, for people to understand that convertibles are a great way to invest in the market right now. You're gonna buy 10 year treasuries at, at 65, 70 basis points. Does that make any sense? Uh, or, or high yield, that's, I don't know if you can call it high yield anymore, we'll call it higher yield, right? Uh, and so, you know, what makes sense here? Now we do have some allocation to high yield only funds uh, to, to help maintain the higher dividend. But uh, in terms of the risk reward profile, in terms of the opportunity set, I mean, it's hard for me to find anything better than convertibles right now. So the discount is, is, uh, is an opportunity more so than anything else. I think uh, as a result of this conference, I think people will be more aware and, and greater appreciate uh, the value proposition of convertibles as an asset class. Yeah, uh, John, we have three convertible funds. One of them was started uh, by the Dinsmore family back in the 1980s, so it works. And uh, congratulations to all of you and you convertible guys. You want to stab at this uh, question, Mario? Or you pretty much, you want to take on this question or? Uh... Well, is it about my uh, baseball habit or, or whether I can dunk? We can talk about that as well, but mostly because of the, uh, you know, the, the recovery of since February on the closed-end fund markets and your thoughts on that. Whatever the question that you want to ask, you know, we're, we're jump ball. We don't know what the questions are, so you're in charge. Okay. Why don't we move on? Uh, we have several questions from the audience. Um, a, a ton of them. We won't be able to get to all of them. So let me go through some of these and, and, uh, and, and uh, throw that out to you guys. And, and let me weave through some of these topics that we may not have touched because some of them were coming in during uh, when you guys were speaking. One of them, which seems uh, pretty interesting, uh, question of how taxable closed-in funds compete with ETFs. What are their benefits? Mario, you take a stab at that. You? Uh, you know, the, uh, what I like to do is to have that blindfolded individual statue of taxation level of playing field. And the uh, ETFs using what we found was heartbeat trades, and I don't want to get into that for this purpose. We don't have enough time. But it, basically, they can look it up. And uh, FactSet came up with this definition. Uh, basically, they take an appreciated security and they distribute it. I have the right to do that in an open-end fund, and I could conceivably do it in a closed-end fund. But to distribute it to Merrill Lynch, they have uh, red lights. They won't take it. So if they're redeeming a million dollars, Warren Buffett's buying company X at a tender offer of $335. We have a $35 cost basis. The same in the converts. Merrill Lynch, uh, somebody that has an ETF can distribute that out and not pay a tax so that your tax basis is unchanged as an owner of this instrument. And as a result of that, you, don't, you have a deferred tax, which allows you to compound wealth. That's what's important for individuals that are investing in the American system and in stock market and in the bond markets uh, to allow that to grow for their retirement age. A real structural problem we have is the aging of our population. The second part, is uh, obviously, uh, is the money in a 401k? Is the money in the defined benefits? Is the money in the state retirement system? Is it in a union account? Is it in a, uh, if it is, then it's neutral. 
So uh, we have to distinguish. Last time I looked, uh, John, I 55% uh, or JK on uh, my uh, funds uh, were in uh, tax-free accounts. So that's an element. But, it w but the more important element is make it tax efficient for everyone. Have level the playing field. And it's not level today. Hey, John, let, let me, let me uh, take a stab at another end of the ETFs because I think it's important. It's a little uh, different from your question, but there are convertible ETFs. And to me, I find them very challenging because the essence of owning a convertible is positive asymmetry. Convertibles have structural alpha because you capture majority of the upside uh, and you only suffer a portion of risk on the downside. The ETFs buy a bunch of convertibles and they leave them. And so you have convertibles in there that trade at four and five times par. So if you bought the Tesla convertible and it's trading at 500 right now, the way it performs in the marketplace is no different than the underlying equity. It's not a convertible anymore. Uh, and so to me, uh, convertibles really lend themselves to active management because you need to constantly rebalance to be able to get that sweet spot or positive asymmetry. There's no positive asymmetry in a convertible trading at three, four, five times par, okay? And Tesla is the biggest uh, issuer in the convertible marketplace where it's eight, 9% of the index right now. So to me, uh, I think that, I know you didn't ask about that, but since you brought up ETS, I think it's important for your audience to understand the difference between active management and convertibles, in my opinion, really require active management to take advantage of the essence of a convertible, which is its positive asymmetry, the upside participation with only a portion of the risk on the downside. And a convertible ETF cannot capture that. It's only convertible in name, but not in reality. Well, that bodes well for active managers, and I second that. John, you want to add anything to that? No, I agree with that. And we're, we're in a period where active management uh, really makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, you know, people have gotten so focused on just the indexes that we're in a period, especially with everything going on, that active management uh, really makes a lot of sense. Obviously, it's always made uh, a lot of sense in convertibles. They can be very equity-like or very bond-like at one point. So managing that upside downside has been really crucial over, over many market cycles. And we do the same thing. We watch that very, very carefully. Okay. I'm reading through some of these questions because a lot of them are, uh, I think we touched upon. One of the questions has to do with um, consolidation in the closed-end fund space. What do you guys feel is the outlook for closed-end funds in terms of the future demand given some of these bigger funds like Noreen and BlackRock who have consolidated certain closed-end funds that have similar investment parameters? So what, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, the future of this consolidation. Who wants to take a stab at this first? I'll take a stab at it first. I think, I think the consolidation is a function of activism for short-term profits. And I don't think it's a great long-term productive scenario for the closing fund uh, industry. Uh, I spoke about why closing funds make sense for individual retirees, for the ability to enjoy long-term high yields uh, to supplement the income. I talk about uh, uh, corporations or small mid-sized companies, the ability to raise long-term capital to fund the operations and capital expenditures and be able to hire workers, uh, uh, an indirect beneficiary of closed-end funds. And I think a lot of these closed-end funds emerge because of the pressure of activism, which I don't think is a great long-term positive. So I think that needs to be addressed uh, in the marketplace, in my opinion. 
uh, and I understand why uh, it occurs. I understand there's short-term profits to be had, but at the expense of a long-term solution. And uh, I grew up understanding that you want to be long-term greedy as opposed to short-term greedy. So I think that's what's happening. Uh, I think uh, uh, recent rules out of the government addressing uh, indirectly uh, the activism uh, and understanding and appreciating that it's not long-term productive or intermediate-term productive, uh, I think will bode well for the industry. So I, I'm bullish on closed-end funds because they make sense. They provide a solution to the individual investor, to corporations. Uh, and so we have to do everything we can to support that premise in this country. Country's gonna need capital. Uh, you know, I look at a lot of the convertible issues that have come this year. They are supplementing the income of these companies to get over this liquidity bridge, right? So if the market didn't, wasn't there, what would these companies do? And these closed-end funds have been investors in those convertibles because they can afford to be long-term investors because of permanent capital. So the squeeze put on by short-term activism, uh, in my opinion, has not been productive, but I think we've moved uh, on to a new phase in that regard. Uh, and uh, I look forward to a, a growing industry, A, by raising the profile of convertibles as an asset class, raising the profile of closed-end funds, and I think that uh, hopefully uh, the merging of these funds, as I mentioned earlier, there was 650 plus closed-end funds in 2007. There's somewhere around 500 today, almost a 25% decline. Uh, and so we think that trend should start to reverse uh, and we look forward to that. And I think by also having smaller uh, intermediate sized managers being able to issue new closed-end funds will also help uh, bring new innovative ideas to the closed-end fund marketplace. So all that is productive and the reason to be uh, optimistic that the closing fund industry has sort of plateaued and is on its way back, so. Thank you very much, uh, Tracy, we appreciate that. Uh, Mario, the question was on consolidation. Some of the big boys were uh, consolidating certain strategies that were similar. You wanna add to that? I, I can't answer. I don't have the analysis of whether they were doing it in immunity funds or whether they were doing it in fixed income. I'm more focused on equities and converts. So, uh, plus Larry Fink is running a big business and he's got a lot of reasons and the same thing with Naveen. Let them do what they want to do. They're making business decisions, not investment decisions. Well said. John? I, I just agree with uh, allowing some of the smaller companies to issue uh, closed-end funds uh, like we did in the past, I think uh, I, I'd like to see uh, that happen again. That'd be uh, a positive for the closed-end fund market as well as the investor. Yeah, I, you know, having Merrill Lynch uh, allow a, a large number of small managers and to absorb that fee makes a lot of sense. Yep. Okay. One of the questions we did touch upon this before but I think maybe we want to, you know, if we want to drill it home, um, the closed-end funds, are, some of them are still trading wider. Uh, is this a good opportunity to be buying some of this? I think we all touch a little bit, of, uh, a little bit about it, but um, anybody want to, that was one of the, it came up two, three times in some questions. I want to make sure that... Uh, we hammer that home in terms of what each one of your thoughts are on that. Well, well look, John, if you can invest in a closed-end fund that has had good performance, 
where the manager's doing the right credit work and hasn't really had a lot of bankruptcies and so on and so forth, and you're able to get yields of seven, eight, nine percent, and buy that at a, a double-digit discount of say 10% or 9%, so your standstill rate of return, nothing changes and things normalize, is going to be 18, 19, 20%. Where else are you going to get that? And the dividends paid monthly in many instances, right? So I'm hard pressed to find a better opportunity than closed-end funds trading at a discount. And on top of that, a convertible closed-end fund where you have inherent downside protection within the closed-end fund because our average maturity is only 4.3 years, right? So to me, it's a wonderful way to be in the marketplace. So you got 10-year treasuries at 65, 70 base points, as I said before. You have investment-grade corporate spreads pretty tight. You have high-yield spreads pretty tight. Um, so to me, convertibles is one of the few places that's an overlooked asset class that makes a lot of sense. And if you can buy that closed-end fund at a you know 10% plus or minus a couple points discount and get an 8%, 9% yield on top of that, I mean, if someone's got a better idea, I'd love for them to share it. I'd love the audience to tell me what that is. Well, Tracy, that really bodes well for many of our products. Uh, John, you want to add to that? Uh, so thank you for that. Yeah, I'll add to that too. And, and I think uh, to Tracy's point here, where we saw the discount wasn't because of bad performance for the portfolio. It was because of the macro, what's going on. And, and you know, actually the, the convertibles did well on the downside of that. So you would think that they would be buying, they'd be at a premium, not a discount in here. So this macro view has provided a good investment opportunity for investors to buy these closed end funds at a discount. I, I think it's a buying opportunity. Uh, even if the market were to go sideways and they'd make up the discount, they'd be earning 10% right there. So it, it's, 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 it's a, I, I think a good opportunity uh, today for investors. You know, John, and I also want to add that, you know, you see a lot of convertible issuers uh, tend to be uh, uh, disruptors. I'm looking at uh, RH today, stocks up $65, the serial convertible issuer. Amazon was an issuer. Uh, Spotify, the private marketplace, Uber, the private convertible marketplace, which you can buy in the closing funds because they're permanent capital. So the fact that you can buy all these disruptor type companies, Apple issued a convertible many years ago. So you have a lot of forward-thinking, innovative companies utilizing the convertible capital markets to fund their expansion, which is great for the uh, investor and great for the issuer. It's one of the few asset classes that both the issuer and the investor really benefit uh, at the same time and really on the same sides because we both want the stock to go higher, right? And so we both have that uh, uh, objective as opposed to a, a fixed income issuer wants the lowest interest rate possible and the investor wants to keep the highest rate possible as long as possible. So they're on opposite sides of the fence. Well, convertible investor and issuer really on the same side of the fence because we both want the stock to do well. And when you look at the type of companies in the marketplace, you also diversify your portfolio because if you're a fixed income investor, you're not going to be able to buy a lot of these technology issuers because they don't issue straight debt, they issue convertibles. So it's a way for you to diversify your portfolio as well. So to me, uh, it's a great opportunity, particularly when you see a lot of these growth companies. I mentioned earlier that the convertible, convertible growth index is up 40% this year. So it's a way to have access to growth wrapped in a, in a more stable uh, and superior senior security. So that's a wonderful way to, to participate 
uh, in this marketplace, particularly low interest rates, bodes well for growth stocks. You know, the, we're running out of time here, so maybe Mario, I'll give you last word if you wanna clean up here. Uh, I think we have a couple of minutes left in terms of uh, these deep discounts. And if you also agree uh, with the other panelists that it's a great opportunity given, you know, depending on the fund to, uh, to invest in those. No, I don't, uh, there's not much I can add to that. From the equity point of view, if I'm buying company X, which is selling at $17 with uh, 3.3 million shares, 50 million market cap, the stock will triple in the next three or four years. I'm buying it at a major discount from the intrinsic value. I'm buying it and they're buying the fund in the small cap world at a 10 or 12% discount. It's a double discount. It's common sense. The problem is that message doesn't come across. So the notion that you started with and the notion of what CenturyLink does in terms of closed-end funds is the process of education. And you have two individuals that are strong disciples and believers, one of which has been on the sell side, one has been on the buy side for most of their careers, and uh, in the last 20 years, preaching uh, for the value of what they do in the convertible area. But closed-end funds have the uh, virtues that we talked about. So I'm privileged to be on this panel and thank you for including me. Thank you very much, Mario. Nicholas, anything to add to this? Well, I was actually reaching out to you, as you know, saying that this has been a particularly interesting conversation. No one has left, as you can see, everybody's here listening very carefully. So we can uh, conclude or we can go on for a little longer up to you. I mean, we already had an hour. Uh, I've got to go check my RH. <laughs> okay. So in that case, I will uh, again, Thank you. I think it has been obviously a tremendously insightful discussion. You, you touched upon so many topics and uh, it, it was great. Thank you very much to uh, all four of you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And we look forward to next year being year number 20. I mean, time flies, doesn't it? Uh, get on the block here, we look forward to that. <laughs> so thank you again and have a great thank rest you. of the day. Thank you. You bet. Nice to be with all of you. Take care. Thank you, everyone.